flesh that we have. Made of the same stuff that you and I are made of. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. What does the work represent there? What? Sin? Okay, what, what is that? When I'm thinking of works, I'm thinking of something else that actually gives shape to sin. Helps us recognize sin. That if we didn't have, we could be potentially oblivious to sin. Okay, how do we have the knowledge of good and evil? Okay, the law. The same tutor or the same master, really in some ways, that the Jews have or had is now our tutor. And that's a tutor that leads us to Christ because it gives shape to sin in our lives. Now we can see it and go, oh, there is a knowledge of good and evil now because the law has been given to us and we see that we are wicked. We see that we have failed and wronged a holy God. So that's the relief that we've been given from this one that came out of the ground, the relief from our work. We're not under works anymore, are we? We're under grace. And we trust in Him by faith. And our salvation is based on faith, not based on works. Let's start in verse 6, or in verse 1 of chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and we're going to come back to Noah, this whole passage that I just addressed and this whole Christ theme it's going to come back around. Let's start in verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men, saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Okay, I want you to remember now, if you were here the, a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the passages before this, that there are two lines that have developed. Do you remember who were the heads of those two lines? To have a little quiz. I know it's been two weeks. Cain and Seth, very good. The Sethites and the Cainites. We'll just give them a little name to help us remember who they are. Um, and Noah is at the end, or at least at develop, the developing end right now, of the Sethite line. The Sethites were those who walked with God, and, those, and then the Cainites are those who kind of walked on their own program, where they're building cities, and they're into music, and poetry, and craftsmanship, and all the things that are going to make a name for themselves. Do you remember that was their pursuit? We want to make a name for ourselves. These sons of God and daughters of men is a difficult topic. Some of y'all might be here tonight just because you, you recognize what's next in, the, in Genesis. You're like, okay, what's he going to do with those? These are very, very difficult passages and um, identi- or persons or groups of people. And I want to give you kind of where I want to develop for you what I believe this is referring to. I believe that there's a potential that this is referring to the intermarrying of the Sethite line and the Canaanite line. That the sons of God are the Sethite line and the daughters of man are the Canaanite line. Now the problem with that is Seth and his line had a bunch of daughters too. <laughs> so that's where that idea kind of falls apart. Um, turn to, keep your finger in Genesis and turn to Job chapter 1. And I'll give you some other thoughts on this. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Job chapter 1, <coughs> verse 6, on page 417 of your pew Bible. <coughs> now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. This is a passage that kind of leans toward this, this idea that this, this, the sons of God might be some sort of angelic beings. 
some sort of spiritual beings. Uh, this passage here, it's that the sons of God reference isn't used very often, and the times that it's used, a couple of times have to do with um, these angelic sort of beings, and the other times they have to do with divine kings, and I'll show you those here in a second. But again, look at this one. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So it's pretty obvious, I think you would expect, that we're not talking about physical beings. This is where Satan asked permission to test Job, or in fact, God offered up Job, said, have you considered my servant Job? So this, I think we can, we can expect that at least in this reference, it's, it's pointing to some sort of angelic being. I turn to 2 Samuel 7.14. Seven fourteen on page two thirty. I'm in First Samuel, sitting here looking, trying to figure out where I got that verse from. That's on page two fifty nine. Excuse me. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. He's speaking of his, the stripes that he's going to put on him. This is pointing to a, a king and his role as a divine appointed ruler, divinely appointed ruler. Here's another passage, Psalm 2-7. Get your Bible drill on on Wednesday nights, or at least tonight you will. <clears throat> Psalm 2 7, page 448. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. Now, this is David writing. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And this is kind of another picture of being a son of God as an appointed king. And Psalm 82 is another. Psalm 82, verse 6, page 492. I said, you are God, Son of the Most High, all of you. These these three passages, if you really kind of spend some time looking at the context, they point toward the sons of God being divine kings. So there's a possibility that the sons of God is referring to uh, divine kings. There's a possibility the sons of God is referring to heavenly beings. Now here's where things get a little bit more... Complicated. Turn to First Peter chapter three. <clears throat> I want to show you a couple of passages to consider that really shaped the uh, uh, the early church fathers into believing that this was referring to angelic beings. Okay, the well, first one is First uh, Peter chapter three, verse nineteen. It's on page 1016 of your pew Bible. I'll look back a verse just for the sake of um, context. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. If you read commentators on that verse, that is such a complicated verse. Um. I'm not comfortable with the thought that Jesus went to hell after he died in that three-day period. 
Uh, there's passages that talk about him going into the depths of the earth, into Sheol, or uh, I think that's pointing to him going to a grave. He owed Satan nothing. That's a ransom theory that gives us the idea that Jesus went to hell during that period because he had to pay Satan something. He owed God. <laughs> he, propitiation is a picture where God has been wronged, where he's making a payment, God work, not Satan work. So that's why I'm not comfortable with him going to preaching in hell. That's what some people would say this verse means, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now here's the connection with Noah. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waiting in, waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Now, what I think that's pointing to is Christ, either the pre-incarnate Christ preaching, Maybe through Noah, not like Noah's out and have, having this out-of-body experience, but the Holy Spirit influences our preaching today, so I don't think that it's out of the question for a pre-incarnate Christ to influence and prepare a message that's spoken through Noah as he's preaching to these spirits, these sons of God that are ignoring God, that are living in rebellion while he's building the ark. He's building and preaching and building and preaching and building and preaching. That's... There are three or four different possibilities what this leans to, but I think this points toward the sons of God. This passage contributes to the sons of God being the spirits that somehow Christ is preaching to, to either a pre-incarnate Christ in the days of Noah, because he did exist then. I hope you know that, because there was never a time when he was not. Or maybe somehow stepping outside of the boundaries of time and somehow preaching to them. I don't think he's given them a second chance to repent. I think he's preaching to them in their context, these sons of men. But I think it points toward them being spirit. Here's another passage in Jude. We're not going to read the whole book tonight. I know that would be a challenge for us. Jude on page, uh, let's see, 1027. That also contributes toward a picture of... um, of this, these being spirits or some sort of angelic beings. Jude 6 and 7, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Those are the two passages, that Jude passage and 1 Peter 3, that really contributed to the early church fathers thinking that these were like angelic beings, these sons of God, that somehow intermarried with the daughters of men. Now, the problem with that is when you consider the context of this passage, God is hacked at flesh. All right, I, hope you, I don't know if you did. If you did, you kept your hand in Genesis chapter 6. If you didn't, you need to go back there. I want to show you something. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. This flood thing is about flesh. This flood thing is not about some sort of weird, angelic beings. And even Jesus attested to the fact that angels don't marry. 
Someone was asking him about who's going to marry and after you die, who are you going to be married to? If you're married to one person, they die and you remarry and then you go on to be in heaven who you're married to. And he said, we're going to be like angels. You're not going to marry. And marriage is not going to be an issue. And he actually pointed toward angels not marrying. Two different references for that. If you're curious about that, Matthew 22, 30 and Mark 12, 25. I think where I want to land in this, where I think is the most sensible place to land in the treatment of the sons of God and the daughters of men and what's going on there. I think the best place to land is to combine the the angel's view with the divine king's view and see these sons of God as being demon-possessed kings, our fallen angel-influenced kings. Because then we're still talking about the sons of God being sort of these spiritual beings but then we're also incorporating these other passages that seem to point toward them being physical kings that have control and power, but they're flesh. So it seems to be these kind of a combination of, of uh, views there. A fallen angel influenced men of power marrying with common women and building these big harems. And the picture in that is that they're taking any wives that they chose. Remember that? These guys are taking any wives that they want. A picture of them building these big harems. And the wickedness of that is what um, fuels God's anger. I know that's a long way of going about that treatment there. And if you're kind of confused on that, that's okay. I'm confused too. It'd be one of the things that we find out when we can see him face to face. I don't think we'll really care. (laughs) But maybe it might be a question on our mind. Verse 3. Then the Lord said... My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. Now, God is long-suffering. I hope we know that, and I hope we appreciate that. He's long-suffering, and he's patient, and he's forbearing, yet his holiness keeps him from contending with this wickedness forever. Whoever these sons of God are, and these daughters of men, and that are marrying, whatever is going on there, it's wickedness, period. And although he's patient, although he's forbearing, his holiness keeps him from contending with this wickedness forever. So he numbers their days to 120 years. Now, the way I've handled this, or the way I've read this for years before preparing for this study, has been that this meant that nobody could live more than 120 years. I think that's really kind of the most common handling of that. Because before that, people were living like like Methuselah, 900-something years, you know. They're like 500 years old and having babies. You know, it's some incredible ages now. But then it seems like he's just like, okay, I'm tired of putting up with these cats for 800, 900 years. I'm going to number their years to 120 years. And when I was a kid growing up, I used to read the Guinness Book of World Records. That was like the thing I did for fun. But man, can you believe how many times, how many push-ups this guy did, you know? But I remember like the oldest person. When I was a kid, I want to say it was 119 or something like that. This old lady lived in France. And there, there may be. I don't know if anybody's lived more than 120. Does anybody know if anybody's lived more than 120 years? Anybody have grandparents or anybody that might be still propped up somewhere and <laughs> taking nourishment somehow? The, um, it, this, this could be limiting their years to 120 years. But I think what this is talking about, uh, well, here's why I don't think that's the case. Keep your finger there in in Genesis 6 and look over at Genesis 11. Here's why I don't think this is the case. In Genesis 11, verse 10, this is after the flood. 
Remember the three, Noah's three boys? Remember who they were? It wasn't Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay. Shem, now look in verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpashad two years after the flood. And Shem li- lived after he fathered Arpashad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. Look at these years that follow. Verse 13, 430 years, or excuse me, 403 years, 430, 209. Just look down the page, 200, 119 years, 207. So it doesn't seem to be that those years are limited to 120 years. This is after the flood that this is happening. And then there's a passage over in Psalm, Psalm chapter 90, that talks about years being about 70 years, and if you're really blessed, you live about 80 years. So those are a lot less than 120. So I think this is important. This isn't a nebulous discussion. I think what this is pointing to is that these 120 years is about God's patience with these wicked man, with wicked people. I think he's given them 120 years from his pronouncement. of, And his pronouncement over there in chapter 6 was, Wickedness of man is great on the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart is only evil. I believe it's 120 years later that the, the floodgates open. I think it's 120 years from that pronouncement to when he actually uh, sends the flood. This would reconcile with Romans 2. If, you read, if you're familiar with Romans at all, you read Romans 1, and you see what man has done. He's traded the truth about God for a lie. He's worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. It's one thing after another that man has done as in his doing, and God is turning them over and turning them over and turning them over. And then in chapter 2, he's speaking to those who are judging those people that are sinning, yet doing this sin themselves. He says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I think this 120 years is about an opportunity to repent. I think this 120 years is not about the age of man. It's about a a long-suffering, forbearing God that he's giving wicked man to repent. I'll tell you something I think that it's also about. I think it's also about developing darkness. This would reconcile with Sunday's message about this pattern, this redemptive pattern that God has of allowing and in some cases even ordaining darkness for his people so that he can liberate them from that darkness. A great example being Egypt. Well in advance, he told Abram, your your people that are going to number like the sands on the seashore are going to be in slavery for 400 years, but I'm going to liberate them. He develops darkness, and in that case, even ordains darkness, and I think that's what may be happening here. While he's giving them opportunity to repent, He's also letting darkness boil. He's letting pitch develop for when Noah and seven other cats, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and all their wives, climb on that ark with two-by-two critters and float off with humanity swimming. I think he's letting darkness develop. It sounds like God. Look at Genesis 15. We read this passage on Sunday. Genesis 15, verse 13, just for the sake of context, I'm going to look at verse 12. This is um, a passage where God is sharing with Abram what's in store. It says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, 
Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age. And they shall come back here, here, being Canaan, being the promised land. They'll come back here, Abram, this land that I'm giving to you, this people, your people, your offspring, that'll number like the sand on the seashore, you can't say that fast many times, will come back here in the fourth generation. Listen, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, once it's dark enough, I'm going to bring them back. The iniquity of the Amorites is not complete. It's like saying, they're not wicked enough yet. <laughs> I'm going to let them get just wicked enough to, that I'm going to lead my people into that, speak light into that darkness, and draw out a people in that context. It's just like God. It sounds like God to let this 120 years pass, maybe that the iniquity of humanity hadn't been completed yet. It's not dark enough yet for the ark to float away. Sounds like God. When I'm thinking about this picture of the, the Amorites, the wickedness of the iniquity of the Amorites being incomplete, I was thinking, I didn't, wasn't really able to develop this on Sunday, but I've thought about this a hundred times since then, is the Israelites that were born in slavery in Egypt. Imagine being born in slavery, living your whole life crying out to God. God, save us. God deliver us, but you're generation number two. You live your whole life in darkness, and you die. And you think, man, God, where were you? Not knowing that all the while, God is developing darkness because the iniquity of the Amorites is not complete. Because darkness is developing because it's a God's plan for glory and God's plan for deliverance. When Jesus found out that Lazarus was sick, he didn't hustle off to Bethany. And save Lazarus then. It says he waited four more days. It's almost like, eh, it's not quite dark enough yet. I think I'm going to let it get pitch before I show up there. Where Mary and Martha are just plain chapped at me. I think I'm going to wait until Lazarus stanks. Because he's been decaying for four days. And then I'll show up as light. It just seems to be God's pattern to wait for things to get really dark. And the, thing, the reason I think this is an important point for us tonight is because I want you to imagine being Noah. And I want you to imagine being, having God's favor and being found righteous because of God's favor. I want you to imagine living in this age where the sons of God are marrying the daughters of men and there's this terrible wickedness going on. I want you to imagine that 120 years is a long time. 100 of those years maybe working on the ark with the, the backdrop of the jeers of humankind, the laughs of your neighbors. Man, you guys are crazy. I want you to think 400 years is a long time if you're an Israelite in Egypt. And I'm thinking right now, whatever darkness, whatever Egypt, whatever fullness of iniquity that might be coming in in some ites, <laughs> you might think, God, where are you? Whatever darkness that you're experiencing right now, it may seem like a long time, but God's deliverance comes in His time for His glory. It may not be dark enough yet. I um, Sometimes I, I wonder how much to share with y'all of my personal um, struggles, but I, 
I've, I have just experienced a terrible darkness today. Just a terrible darkness. And it, it's just a broken heartedness over Greenville. And, it, you know, when I'm reading and preparing things like this, it's an encouragement to me because I realize that it may not be in my lifetime. It may not be dark enough yet for a movement of people. And I'm not talking, man, I heard people, I'm ready for revival. I'm, I want revival. I'm begging for doggone revival where Greenville, the most highly saturated community likely in the world with church buildings, actually has an affection for Christ. I'm hungering for that. I may not see it in my lifetime. I might be an, an, an Israelite that dies in Egypt. But I want to be found faithful knowing that when it's dark enough, then he's going to show up. I'm begging that it's, it's, it seems dark to me right now when 3% of people in this community actually even engage a body of believers and the rest of them think they're square with God. That's dark to me, but maybe it's not dark enough yet. But I want to be found faithful in the interim. He may be waiting for the iniquity of Greenville to be complete. Or he may be giving um, Greenville time to repent. He might be forbearing and patient, giving Greenville time to repent from wickedness. Verse 4 of chapter 6. <clears throat> the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Nephilim, that's another real mystery. What a weird deal. You know, if you see a big guy, you know, like a big moose that plays football or basketball, you know, that's kind of our version of a Nephilim. They were their, you know, those giants. That's kind of what they referred to these guys as. I don't know really what these guys were. They were the offspring of the sons of God marrying the daughters of men. But they're flesh. Um, I think we can trust that they're flesh. It says they were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. That's not like renown like great old Nephilim. That's like infamous renown. It's not fame like, boy, what a great guy, that Goliath. You know, like maybe Goliath was one of those guys. Because it says that they were on the earth also afterward the flood. So either they're really good swimmers, which I don't think. I think their fate was the same fate as the rest of humankind, unless one of maybe Shem or Ham or Japheth was a real moose. But I don't think that they would be product of the sons of men and that are the sons of God and the daughters of men if they're Noah's offspring because we're talking about a different, totally different group of people. But somehow these Nephilim were still sticking around. But I think their fate, I expect that they couldn't swim for a year. They might have been pretty mighty. But that's a long swim. But there's apparently some on the earth after the flood too. You might remember the spies that went into Canaan and what their report was when they came back. Remember two of those spies, the famous, lots of kids are named that, young men are named that these days, boys. Joshua and Caleb, okay? They had the, the true report. What did the other guys say? Man, there's Nephilim there. They're huge. We're like grasshoppers. Beep, 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 jumping around. They're going to eat our lunch. Maybe they were there. I don't know. But just the fact that they brought it up again gives some credence to the, the, the thought that they were there after the flood also. It also, I think, the, the reality that the Nephilim were still these evil, the offspring of wickedness, really. The sons of God and the daughters of men 
hooking up and then having the Nephilim. I think the fact that they were there after the flood is a hint of something else that didn't drown in the flood. We'll look at that in a moment. Okay, verse 5. I'm baiting you there because this is going to be rich when you see it. Verse 5. It won't be an encouragement to you, but it'll just be illuminating. Verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I'm going to read that again. That's just so good. It's so true. I enjoy something that's so true. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil, was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is a pretty terrible wickedness that's going on here. That If you kind of connect the dots here, the great wickedness of man is that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was evil continually. The question that I'm just throwing out there, we're going to answer it here in a moment, is, is the flood going to change that? Was it a different age then than it is now? <laughs> we're going to consider that in a moment. Now, it says that God was sorry, really. And it connects his being sorry with being grieved. He was sorry and grieved to his core. It says to his heart. Where is it? Uh, he grieved him to his heart. It's an interesting contrast. The man's heart, every intention of the thoughts of his heart is evil continually. And God's heart as a result is grieving, sorrow, sorrowful heart. Keep your finger in uh, Genesis chapter 6 and look at 1 Samuel 15. First Samuel 15, uh, 29 on page 238 of your pew Bible there, or your ESV. It says, And also the glory of Israel will not, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. It's important to recognize that what we're reading here, that God is feeling the sorrow and grief, is not regret. Because God's not like a man that he says, Oops! Man, I regret having made man. It's not regret. It's sorrow and grief, but not regret. And also look at Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. It says uh, on page 132, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind? Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? He's also not changing his mind here. He's not regretful, and he's not changing his mind. This is a demonstration. This grief, this sorrow that he's feeling, is already a demonstration of his redemptive pattern of allowing darkness in hopes of delivering a remnant people. A holy God cannot allow darkness and yet enjoy it. All the while, His plan and His will being worked out all along, He can't sit there and enjoy wickedness. It's just not characteristic of His holiness. It says that God will blot out man, and with punishment and consequences on man comes the collateral damage to the animals, the creeping things, and the birds, and the earth. 
But the beauty is that with a holy and grieving heart in a holy God, there comes grace. In that backdrop of a grieving, holy, huge heart, not regretful, not changing his mind, there comes grace. And that grace is Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Look back at chapter 5, verse 29. I told you that this would come back around. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, this one, this Noah, shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. He didn't just bring humankind relief. He also brought God, God's heart relief. His being preserved as a remnant brought relief to God's heart. It's an early picture of propitiation. Remember propitiation? The word means wrath-absorbing. That's what Christ has done in our place where He stepped in our stead and He bore the wrath that was due toward us. This is an early picture of that. Not where uh, Noah is receiving the wrath, though. It's where the rest of humankind is receiving the wrath. It's also an early picture of substitutionary atonement where all of humankind serves as a substitution, a substitutionary sacrifice that is sacrificed in place of a remnant that will be preserved. In order for something to be preserved, in, up, in order for something to commune and fellowship with a holy God, what happens? Something's got to die. Something has got to die. And in this case, it's all humanity. And all critters, minus the ones that are on the ark. Look at chapter 8. Verse 21, the reason this is tied to sacrifice, the reason this is an early picture of propitiation and substitutionary atonement is here in verse 21. After the flood, it says, when the Lord smelled the pleasing... I'm going to back up a verse. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, there it is, an appeased, satisfied Propitiated, I don't know if that is the proper word, Um, satisfied God. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's... Well, I'm about to answer another question, but I'll go ahead and read it anyway. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Okay, but we're talking about a satisfied God where all humanity became a sacrifice. Now, you remember the question that I asked a moment ago. Will the flood change the heart of man? Was it a purging instrument or was it a, um, a judgment instrument where a remnant is preserved? Let's consider this verse again. Chapter 8, verse 21. And when the Lord smelled, remember this is after the flood, He smelled the pleasing aroma of Noah's sacrifice. The Lord said in His heart, the same heart that grieved before is now satisfied with that sacrifice. And here's what He said. I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart I wish it said was, but it doesn't. It says, is evil from his youth. Where I want to go in these next few minutes is I want to take you through a series of passages to consider man's condition. It's going to be just a little brief step away from Genesis. It's just going to be a drill, a Bible drill, because I want you to appreciate, if anything, from this study as we move in to looking at the rest of the flood story next Wednesday, is that we don't go into it thinking that good guys float and bad guys sink. I want you to see what our place is in this story, apart from Christ. I want you to see the condition of mankind, because it's in that context that we'll truly appreciate grace. 
Let's go on this little journey with me. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. I'll give you page numbers. You can drop your finger out of Genesis because we won't be coming back there. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, page 996. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, listen to this, having the appearance of godliness, uh-oh, but denying its power. Avoid such people. If you read that list, man, it'd be easy to think, well, he's talking about pre-flood people. He's talking about wickedness. You know, the sons of God marrying the daughters of men. That's post-flood. <laughs> That's now. There's another passage. Revelation 20. Revelations is obviously at the, at the back. Page 1040. Verses 7 through 10. And when the thousand years are ended, this is after a thousand years that Satan has been locked into a dungeon. It's a millennial reign where Christ has reigned on the earth either with all those saints that have been martyred over the years or with what I believe to be all the saints over the ages. That Christ will reign on the earth. The, the earth that still exists now, this earth, not the new heavens and new earth, but this earth, that he'll reign for a thousand years. All the while, Satan will be locked in a dungeon. And here's what happens after a thousand years where Christ reigns. The sweetest, imagine, it's going to be the sweetest reign, the sweetest time in the history of the world. And the moment that Satan is let out, listen what happens. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Huh? The nations just run right back to him. He's been gone for a thousand years, and Christ has been reigning. Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. That's an interesting contrast. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is a future story. And it's important to realize this wickedness is yet in store. And this wickedness we may be a part of. We may be... Witnesses of right now. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46. Page 289. Listen to this sequence of verses. And I, I'm begging you. I, I'm, I'm going to move really fast, but I'm begging you that as you make this journey, jot these passages down. And read these passages periodically. Whenever I was preaching through, through John chapter 11... There was a series of sermons that came that unfolded from that passage called the He Stinka series. It was the King James Version. You know, when Jesus said, roll the stone away, and I think it was Mary said, oh, it may have been Martha, says, oh, but Jesus, he's, he's been dead for four days. Surely he stinketh. And we just considered that Lazarus is a picture of us, and we considered the stench of our own tombs, and we re realized that it's a sweet ministry us, to us to be students of the stench of our own tombs. To realize what we've been delivered from. Now, we're not living in the tomb anymore. And we're not living in our grave cloths anymore. But yet being a student of what we've been delivered from can be a healthy thing. And here's a sequence of passages that will point you toward that. 1 Kings 8, 46. Is it 8? 
Yeah. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. There it is. Okay? Turn to Psalm 51. Remember, we're going to move fast. I won't have any commentary on these next few verses. Psalm 51, page 474. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This is David, a man after God's own heart, writing these words. Has anybody ever said that about you? You're you're a man after God's own heart? Has God... I mean, is that written in a word somewhere about you? I would say that's a pretty high view of David. Yet here's what he's saying about himself. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. That is our story, people. I told you I wasn't going to have any commentary, but I can't pass that up. Psalm 130. Verse 3, page 518. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? (laughs) O Lord, if you're marking, if you're counting iniquities, who can stand before that count? In other words, we fall. Who could possibly stand when God's counting iniquities? Nobody. No one is righteous. No, not one. Psalm 143. Verse 2, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. This is after the flood. Proverbs 29, that's not 29, that's 20, chapter 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? Who can say that? Really, if you examine your heart, can you say that? Now, of course, we're talking apart from the blood of Christ right here. Ecclesiastes 7.20. We're just smelling our tombs for a minute. And going, like taking your cast off after it's been on for six weeks or however long you got to wear a cast nowadays. I don't know. You take that bad boy off, you're like, woo! What crawled up in there and died? Ecclesiastes 7.20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Jeremiah 17, 9. This is our song. Somebody could, I don't hear many worship songs that really kind of like first verse is, each verse develops these these truths. But man, this is, this is, the heart of worship really comes from a recognition of this. Listen, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now turn over to John, move to the New Testament. John 3, verse 3. Jesus answered him. This is when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said, Hey, Jesus, how are you doing all these great tricks? Yeah, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We've got to have a whole new birth before we can even see and experience the kingdom of God. Because of our condition. That's our condition. Romans 3.23. Many of y'all know that one by, by 
um, memory. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 8, 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I was thinking connected to that is Isaiah 64, 6, that the best we have to offer is filthy rags. <laughs> you mean the best we can offer is filthy rags? Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Paul is writing to Gentiles now believing. He says, You were, before Christ, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working the sons of disobedience. And now it wasn't just a Gentile thing, it's a Jew thing too, guys, because listen to this in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the condition. It, bad guys don't sink and good guys float. In fact, we all sink. Titus chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. James 3, 2. Two more passages. James chapter 3, verse 2, on page 1012. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Now look at Luke 17. Luke 17, verse 26. I'm going to back up to verse 22. The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was written in the days of Noah, there's the connection, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Our times are no different. The only difference now is that we just have a different ark. Noah's was made of gopher wood or something like that. I don't know what the cross was made of, but that's our ark. And our, our Noah is Christ. <laughs> and the flood is going on around us as people are dying in their sin. I want you to appreciate that this is not some form of so stoic self-deprecation where you just have these verses where you go, man, I'm so wicked, man, I stink, man, I'm terrible. When you engage these truths about the condition of mankind and our heart and what's truly at our heart, what we're truly made of, then it's an opportunity for a God-glorifying work because grace is amplified in that context. As you study passages like that, combined with passages that illuminate God's glory and holiness, as He gets higher, as the gospel gets bigger, as the Christ, our Christ gets more awesome, meanwhile, as we're growing downward, 
the distance is greater. The distance has always been there, but we're just more aware of it, and we can appreciate how low grace had to reach. And we can go back and read these stories, stories like Noah's story, and it's no longer, man, those are wicked guys. It's, ooh, that's our story, but for Christ. And it changes everything. And we can teach our kids about not only about faithfulness of Noah, but about the riches of the gospel. And about how God's redemptive character, his fingerprints, and his DNA is all over these Old Testament stories. We have a whole new Bible. Put veggie tales down. <laughs> Let's open up this full council and get to know our God. Let me pray. Lord, I want to um, ask you for purchase, these passages, these truths that we've engaged tonight. Just pray for purchase. Just pray that it finds a spot, that the seed hits soil, that, that, and that it takes root. And that as a result of this study tonight, that we'll have a greater appreciation for grace and just how low it reached and how tremendous your love is, how holy you are, how righteous, and how righteous you are in the judgment that's in store that we can feel the flames and flicker of hell, that we can feel the water of the flood, but yet that we can cling to the cross and trust and know that your blood is sufficient. Lord, I pray it gives us a higher view of you and your grace and your mercy and a greater appreciation for the cross, and it makes us more desperate worshipers. Lord, guard us from going through the motions with such a wonderful gospel. Guard us from going through the motions as shepherds at home, just bringing home the bacon and just sitting down and eating and watching TV, but arrest us and captivate us with this wonderful gospel so that we are engaging our children in these riches. Lord, I beg for that. I can't muster it. I can't even muster it in my own life, but I beg that you will arrest us with these sort of truths. We love you, God. We turn the rest of this week over to you for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.